This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book under the covering title of Christian Fundamentals and is number 11 of the second coming as taught in the New Testament. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture around together so those of you who are listening to this recording if you care to join us we are going to read 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4. I think I mentioned some time ago that a few years back I had a letter from a reader in the United States and said, why don't you come down flat-footed about the second coming of Christ as it relates to the church of the one body? So I said, the reason why I couldn't come down flat-footed was that the scripture didn't. And pointed out to him that that aspect of the second coming which is to do with the day when our Lord's feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives, that can be very flat-footed. Now, I'm not playing with the words. I mean to say the Mount of Olives is a geographical term. And that second coming, which has to do with the Battle of Armageddon, that will be an historic fact. That second coming, which involves storms and thunder and lightning and famine and pestilence and war and nations, Oh, you can come down flat-footed over that, you see. But when you come to a calling <clears throat> where every blessing is spiritual, where the sphere is heavenly places where Christ sits, we know so little about it, and so little definite detail is possible that we have to say, well, we read what the scripture says for our learning, we endeavour by his mercy to put two and two together, and if we cannot be so definite with regard to all the incidental details of this as we should like, we remember it's because our calling, instead of being a lowly one, is a most wonderful one. And consequently, the very inability, either for Scripture or for anyone else, to go into intimate details is only an evidence that we're now where Christ sits, at the right hand of God, in heavenly places, and from there our hope is expected. I think you can appreciate the difference between the two aspects, the lowly one and the very exalted one. Well then another thing we want to remember as we're bringing this series to a close, we're not quite the last meeting of this series, but we're coming near to the end, is that we want to be very watchful that we adhere closely to the words which the Holy Ghost teaches. I stress this more and more as days go by because the moment you act, uh, adopt that attitude I believe you're in the right frame of mind and spirit to receive teaching. When we come to the book and think we are the ones to criticise it and tell it what it ought to say then we may bring about a sort of uh, premature blindness. Now in connection with the words used for the second coming we have three in the New Testament. The first word which comes to mind is that which is associated with the second coming of Christ as revealed in Matthew 24 and as is spoken of in the earlier epistles like 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. And that word is the Greek word parousia. It means in itself the personal presence of anyone. And in the days when the apostle lived it was actually used for the preparation made by a town to receive the visit of a king. The only thing about it is that this passage 
we quote from the papyrus, the people have to pay the expenses of his visit. That, of course, is blessedly absent with regard to the parousia of this great king of kings. But still it shows you the way in which it was used in the apostles' own day. Then when we move up into the epistles, uh, both of Peter and the apostle Paul himself in the uh, Acts of the Apostles period, he introduces the word we know so well, which is translated revelation. That is the word apocalypse, apocalypto. And the word apocalypse is made up of two parts, apo, away from, and the other word meaning a veil. It means to remove a veil. The Lord, so far as his position in heaven is concerned, is veiled. But the unveiling of Jesus Christ is associated with him coming out of heaven, riding on a white horse, the armies of heaven following, the ruling with a rod of iron, the setting up of a kingdom, the millennium, the overcomers, reigning with him, and so on. And then we move to the third sphere, the highest of all, the heavenly places in Christ. And there we find another word comes out into the prominent position. For our theory is never used by Paul in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or Second Timothy, of the second coming of Christ. He does use parousia of Timothy himself. Timothy's personal presence was very welcome to Paul, but of course you wouldn't want to drag that in. The third word is the word epiphania. And it is our, in, in English it is the word epiphany. And it means to outshine or shine upon, or as we have it translated, to appear or be made manifest. So that we've got a little guide, you see, the way in which this Subject is taken through the New Testament from one outstanding word to the next and lastly to the appearing. You remember in 2 Timothy 4 that we read just now the characteristic of those who are going to be approved of the Lord in that day are those who love his appearing. That is the word which is associated with the second coming of Christ there. It occurred in chapter 4 verse 1 who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. There it comes again. We shall find it in Titus, and as the time goes on. Well, now there's one other feature I would like to bring before your notice without developing it, because to develop it at all, I should have to spend the whole evening. But we've done it once before. And if you wish to have a fuller exposition of what the adoption stands for, there is a tape recording devoted to that very subject which you can find in the list. But most of us know that the word adoption is a legal term, that it didn't merely mean adopting a poor little waif and stray, it meant in the days when it was used of putting a person's name down in a will and setting him apart as the heir. And then the next thing that comes out of that is this, that in Romans the ninth chapter, Israel according to the flesh, mark you this, it can't be the church. Those who take spiritual Israel cannot be the Israel according to the flesh. Thank God there's one bit that belongs to the people still. Romans the ninth chapter says, To Israel according to the flesh, the very first thing he says of their peculiar blessing is, To them pertain the adoption. Well, if they are the firstborn, as as they were called, when Moses went to Pharaoh, let my firstborn go, they have preeminence, or will have preeminence, of all the nations of the earth. But then when you come to the epistle to the Galatians, we have a company where there's neither Jew nor Greek, who are the 
children of Abraham, and they too have the adoption, and they too are called heirs. But in Galatians, our our thoughts are directed in chapter 4 to Jerusalem, which is above. And when we come to the epistle to the Hebrews, where Abraham again is prominent, we have the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, and there we have the church of the firstborn. That's an adoption. Well, then when we come to our own epistle, the epistle to the Ephesians, sure enough, the word adoption comes in the first chapter. Here we are taken back before the foundation of the world, and we are predestinated unto the adoption. Well, now, it's physically impossible for anyone to be an Israelite according to the flesh, to be a spiritual spiritual heir of Abraham in a company where there's neither Jew nor Greek, and at the very self-same time to be a member of the church of the one body that was chosen before the foundation of the world and blessed in heavenly places in epistles in which the name of Abraham never even is mentioned. Well, now you see, there's only one way in which it can become logically possible that God should have three firstborn sons. He must have three families. And you may know the revised rending of the passage in Ephesians where it says the whole family. It's put right. Every family that belongs to God in heaven and earth. So we have a family belonging to God in which one nation is the firstborn. We have a family belonging to God which has to do with a heavenly inheritance. And one church is called the church of the firstborn. On the earth, other nations are subsidiary to the one. The Gentiles shall be your plowmen. But in the heavenly Jerusalem, there are no Gentiles as such up there. But the church of the firstborn whose name is written in heaven and the innumerable company of angels. For that company, we're told, they were going to be above angels. And then we have our calling which is far above all where Christ sits and angels are not even mentioned because angels are ministering spirits. Angels are the working class of glory. And we have a position which is above principality and power or above the very aristocracy of heaven. So that's as far as we go in that subject. Otherwise, we shall have no time to look at the passages that are before us in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 2 Timothy and Titus with regard to the question of the second coming as it applies to the church of the one body. I hope you'll take the hint and if you're not uh, fully aware of this bearing upon the word adoption then seek out and look it up for yourselves and use all the helps that are available uh, in our literature uh, which have been written not to dominate your faith but to be finger posts pointing in the direction of truth. Well, now, there's not very much in the epistle to the Ephesians to which we can turn when we speak about our hope. Uh, It rather speaks about the sphere of our hope, uh, praise that we may know what is the hope of the calling, but it doesn't actually say definitely what it is, where it is, and why it is. And that was the reason why I suppose this friend wrote to me, He couldn't come down flat-footed as he read Ephesians and he thought, perhaps I've got a few chapters up my sleeve, but I haven't. I'm going to admit that that aspect of the believer's hope is not a theme. It's developed later on. And we'll turn to the epistle to the Philippians and get a little further light 
as we move through these epistles. Now, the, the apostle writing to the Philippians, we want to remember, was not dealing only with the hope. He was dealing specially with the prize of the high calling. So we should have some terms to consider here that are not connected with the hope itself. We want to distinguish between the hope which belongs to your calling, that you could not merit and you cannot lose, and over and above the hope there is a prize of that calling which you have to run for and you may forfeit. So keep that in mind when we're looking at Philippians, but we shall still find some notes that will be of help to us. First of all, the apostle has a day in front of him, as you will see by two references in chapter 1. In one six, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, this is a future day then. He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And again in chapter 1, verse 10, that ye may approve things that are excellent, or as the margin puts it, that ye may try things that differ, that ye may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ. So you see, the point of view of the Apostle here is, not only that that day will be the day which is associated with the hope of the church, but is the day when service will be assessed, and if there's a reward to be given, that is the day to look to. Then we come to chapter 2, and we have a very wonderful day that must come, and this cannot take place unless the Lord appears once more. And here it is in chapter 2, verse 9, after the tremendous stoop down, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him, not merely a name, but the name which is above every name, that at that, but that name which has been given to Jesus, I just wonder whether we make a mistake when we say that at the name of Jesus, it's the name that's been given to him, that name which is above every name, the lowly Jesus, is now going to be recognised at long last as King of Kings for one angle and Lord of Lords from another, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and then we get things under the earth. And if anybody writes to me and says, will you come down flat-footed about the things under the earth? Well, I should have to say something perhaps rude to them. I do not know I've never met anybody who does. But does that mean to say that God is limited or that this will not have a meaning when that day comes? What do we know? We, are, we know very little beyond the crust of our earth. We are rather concerned about the surface of the moon than we are a few hundred miles down beneath because nobody, as far as I know, has ventured or could venture. What it means, we don't know. I think we'll accept it and glory in this that if ever there was a possibility of expressing universality, here it is, things in heaven, things in earth, and as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, and if there be any other creature, which he didn't define, they're all involved. So let's be glad that in days coming, when our Saviour will be exalted, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That is his relationship to the Father. He is Lord. And many times you'll find the word Lord carries with it the thought of a mediator. 
I had a letter from someone who was at one of our meetings on the Sunday morning, and he was asking about the subject we were dealing with. Uh, that we have the one Lord in the centre, but the one God and Father is put right to the end. Well, it isn't because the one Lord is greater than God the Father. It's because the one Lord is the one mediator between one God and men. And without him, there'd be no body at one end, and there'd be no God and Father at the other. For there's no fatherhood of God outside of Christ. It's only in him that all these things become possible. Well, let me turn once more again to Philippians chapter 3. And we have, I'm going to pass this by without much comment, verse 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, the only thing I mention here is, you must remember that the true translation, giving weight to every part of the word that's used, if by any means I might attain unto the out-resurrection, that which is out from among the dead. This has to do not with our hope, but with our prize. The Apostle Paul says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. If he was in doubt as to whether he was going to be raised from the dead, who among us could say, we are sure. But that wasn't the point. It was this special aspect which is parallel to Hebrews when it says a better resurrection. Well, a better resurrection means that it's a better one than somebody else will have. Otherwise, there's no meaning in it. But we pass that and come to the end of chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, where we get rather uh, a pointed comment. It says, verse 20, For our conversation is in heaven. Now, this word conversation is the word which the very appearance of it suggests citizenship. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, we have a similar word, not exactly the same, but built up of the same words. The word for a city in the Greek language is the word polis. And that gives us the word politician, politics, metropolitan, police force, and so on. It's all radiating from the word city. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, we have that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the, now our version says, commonwealth of Israel. Well, that's pretty good. But it's the word citizenship. Aliens from the citizenship of Israel. And further down, when the middle wall of partition which divided the Gentile and the Jewish believer had gone, he says in verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. Here's the same word, only with the word fellow in front of it. So there's a citizenship, you see. And in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 22, the, uh, the Apostle makes use of an expression which covers this same thought we're looking at. Acts 22, verse 26. But when the centurion heard that Paul was a Roman, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. But the chief captain answered, With a great sum, Obtained I this freedom? And Paul said, But I was free born. I think he said it very 
slowly and quietly, don't you? With a great son, I obtained this freedom. But I was freeborn. Now you see, that freedom is that word for citizenship. When he says, art thou a Roman, you mustn't think that he was looking at him saying, well, you haven't got the expression on your face of a Roman because you could be of any nationality in the Roman Empire and become a Roman citizen if it were granted you. It was the greatest honour that could be given to a man. So that people who lived in uh, Galatia, who were Phrygians, would have been insulted if Paul had written to them as Phrygians because Galatia had become a province of Rome and they became Romans. So you see, here we have a citizenship that was valued. Now here's a point. When you come to the reference to, the, to Philippi in the Acts of the Apostles, you're told that Philippi was a chief city and a colony. Well now a colony differs today from what it was in the days of the Apostle. A colony in the days of the Apostle was this, that the city was a miniature Rome at a distance. It had many of the privileges of Romans. It didn't pay certain taxes that other people had to pay. But the one difference, the outstanding difference was that although they were Romans, they were not in Rome. So he wrote to the Philippians and said, Philippians, you're citizens of heaven, but for the time being you're down here. But, his point was, don't you see, if they were a colony, and if he said your citizenship in heaven, it would immediately make them think, well, what sort of life should I live if that's the case? Now will you look at Philippians chapter 3. The word conversation is too free a translation. For our citizenship, polite humour, P-O-L-I-T-E-U-M-A, our citizenship. Now the word is usually means that the verb to be is before us. You know, we don't say I be, thou beest, he bees, or I is, thou is. We, we have all this am, are, is, are, was, was, were, work business. But this is not the verb to be. This is the word hupako. And it occurs in chapter 2 in verse um, Six and seven. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Being is not a part of the verb to be. But possessing this as an inalienable right that never ceased. Even though he became a man, it never ceased. He had this right. He voluntarily laid it aside. He voluntarily took it up again. It, the word is translated in another form, goods or possessions. It doesn't mean merely is or was. It means something you have and hold. So he said, your citizenship abides unaltered in heaven. Perhaps you don't always feel like it. Perhaps some of your friends don't look at you and say, are you a citizen of heaven? Like they said to Paul, are you a Roman? But it's still true. It's there, a reality. Then he goes on to say, from whence, now here again grammar comes to our help. The word whence doesn't refer to heaven. It refers to the citizenship. In connection with that citizenship, and related to that citizenship, the Saviour is coming. And you can quite see what that means. That we're going to be inducted into our position. 
We are citizens now, but we've got no privileges. We've got no rights, in fact, because we're citizens of heaven, we lose some of the rights of citizenship down here. But when that day comes, that citizenship is going to become a most blessed reality. So Ephesians says, you are fellow, fellow citizens down here. But Philippians says, but when he comes, you're going to be citizens in reality up there. For whence we look for a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change, now here we have one word to stop over a minute, metaschematizo, oh you say dear dear, schematizo, scheme, has something to do with shape. Will you look at 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 11, but if I miss my step over this, we'll have to let that slide for a moment. 2 Corinthians Yes, chapter 11, verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And verse 14. And no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Verse 15. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also are transformed as ministers of righteousness. That's the word who shall transform. Isn't that wonderful? You see, the change was very violent, wasn't it? Satan, the prince of darkness, transformed into an angel of light. Because it was false. It was to deceive. But this deals with the reality. What a change. In 1 Corinthians 15, we are reminded, we shall not all sleep, said the apostle, but we must all be changed. And of course, the more you know about the poor old body down here, and all the poor old bodies that are going to make up your neighbours and friends and loved ones and whatnot, you say, isn't it good to know that there's a change coming? Well, at least I think so, and perhaps some people who know me think so. You know? Yeah. Oh, that's a part of the blessed hope. A transformation. And we don't want to appeal to nature outside the Bible, but you remember we are told the invisible things of God are by the work of his hands manifested. Have you ever seen the transformation take place of a funny looking grub split down the back and out presently comes a gorgeous butterfly, dragonfly? Surely God has done that in this world to give us a little object lesson of what can be and if you've never read The Parables from Nature by Mrs. Gatty, written for children, and you come across it, you read about the dragonfly. There was a little group of grubs down the bottom of a pond, all in the mud, who had a convention, and they met together and they said it was silly, impossible and nonsense that anybody should ever go up outside the water and live. But there was one of these grubs who wasn't taking part in the conference, whose eyes were beginning to glow with an inner light. And this, in spite of all their logic, he began to have an urge to climb up the reed that was in the mud. And when he emerged out the top, he flew round a dragonfly. And then he thought, I'll go back to them and tell them. But he couldn't. He couldn't go back again. That's transformation in God's na- uh, world of nature. A little picture. 
You see, the apostle refers to resurrection and the grain that goes into the earth, so we're in good company. Well, then again, we have the next word in this Philippians. Oh, by the way, who shall change our vile body? Well, that may be true, but it isn't what it says. This is harking back to chapter 2 again. Chapter 2. It says in verse 8, And be found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. This word is the body of our humbling. The body of our humiliation. It's the body that in some measure is very much like the things which our Saviour endured for our sakes. It's not vile in the sense that it's wicked. In the epistle of James it says if a man comes into your synagogue in vile raiment, well they may be pretty bad, but there's nothing wicked about them. They were just lowly, they were just rags, they weren't very wealthy, you see. So he will transform this body of our humiliation. You see, I go hopping along just now, but oh, when that day comes, there's a passage that says, Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing, and the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and all the many things that are going to make up the humiliation of this body will be entirely, completely done away. And then you're going to say to me, Oh, what shall we be like, friend and brother? I can only tell you what the scripture says. When we see him, we shall be like him. Good enough? Yes. Now we go on then. That it may be fashioned. This is the word pseumorphos. And you may know that the word M-O-R-P-H has to do with the word form. In fact, some people believe that our English word F-O-R-M is simply the word M-O-R-P-H twisted round the wrong way in the course of the transition of language. But that is by the way. We have in chapter 3... Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable. Here we have the word fashioned, conformable, unto his death. Oh, said the apostle, I haven't finished yet. When I say I'm willing to be made conformable unto his death, do you know what I've got in the background? I've got the blessed hope of one day being made conformable unto the likeness of his glorious body. No wonder that man could say that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings because he knew that that was only going to last for a brief moment. As he said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. So we've got these words, summing it all up at the end of Philippians 3. Well, I think I'd better not stop myself anymore, but read it, don't you? All right, then. Chapter 3, verse 20. For our conversation, no, our citizenship, exists as a fact in heaven, from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our body of humiliation, that it may be fashioned like unto his body of glory, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Well, then we come to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We shall have to come back and deal with Colossians. I want to deal with that last of all. Just a word with regard to the second coming in 2 Timothy chapter 4. The state of the times 
that lead up to that second coming is given in chapter 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. The last days, of course, are those days that lead right to the moment of the second coming. That's the goal. And I would like you to notice the emphasis upon love. As the Apostle has gone through, he has emphasized faith. He has emphasized hope. And he brings out love uppermost in this closing chapter. Now you won't see it in the ordinary English version. So I'm going to just alter it as we read the next two verses. Or three verses. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Well, you can see the word love there. Covetous. No, no, I'll put lovers of money. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient of parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Lovers come twice at the beginning, lovers come twice at the end, and all the terrible things in between because of that. They love the wrong things. And love is one of the greatest powers in this world for good or evil. Another thing which is terribly sad, it's on the surface in the English version, but if you could compare the original with the closing verses of Romans chapter 1, when he speaks about the horrible state of affairs in pagan Rome in his day, you'll see that practically pagan Rome is going to be repeated before the last days come. Happy prospects, aren't they? Unless there was joy beyond. But that's where the world is heading, to sheer blatant paganism. And we can sense it in our newspaper articles, in the various things that come to uh, affect the minds of people. Well, when we come to chapter 4, he says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. This epistle is stressing the place that the scriptures must occupy. As I've said to some folks, they tell me that I limit people by emphasizing the prison epistles. So I said, well, what would you call a fundamental of scripture? Worldly says, I should say, one of the greatest fundamentals is the inspiration of scripture. I say, where do you find it? Oh, to Timothy. I said, that's one of the epistles I emphasize. You can't find a definition of the inspiration of scripture so clear as we've got in this. So you're not losing anything, friends. Here it is. Well, he says, preach the word. And he tells you the time will come or they will not endure sound doctrine. And in verse 4, they shall turn away their ears from the truth. And I always remember to remind myself that in the first chapter, Paul says, they turned away from me. That's the order. First of all, raise an objection to emphasizing the name of Paul. Make the person think that perhaps he's wrong by saying, Paul said this and Paul said the other. Turn away from Paul. Then you'll soon turn away from the truth, for he was the one to whom the truth for today was entrusted. He was the earthen vessel. So it's a very great mistake. And then, he says, in verse 6, I am now ready to be offered. In Philippians he said, if I be offered, at the time of my departure is at hand, 
He said, I will be willing to depart. I have fought a good fight. The word fight is the word agon, the word agony, and is translated race in Hebrews 12. It's not a military fight, it's an agonistic contest, a wrestling, a struggling, a racing. I have finished my course. He used the word that Christ used on the cross, finished. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. And not to me only, says Paul, but unto all them also that have been apostles, no, all them, those also that love his appearing, and then to be more exact, those also that have loved his appearing, you say, what do you mean by that? Or oh, you can start off well and you may end up badly. For Demas hath forsaken me. Now Demas was standing with the apostle and his name is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4. But he's gone. Well, what was the trouble with Demas? He didn't say he denied the faith. It says he, his love got on the wrong thing. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved. There's the contrast. Having loved his appearing, having loved this present age. Which? See the difference? And then he speaks about his own deliverance in verse 18. And the Lord shall deliver me. I noticed when we were reading just now. He says, uh, Out of them all those persecutions I endured in the past, the Lord deliver me. And what he did in the past is a pledge of what he will yet do. Well that means to say we must now come back to the uh, first of Timothy very quickly and then to Colossians. Oh, I'm sorry, not to 1st of Timothy, I mean Titus. Titus chapter 1. And I'll read it and leave it with you as it stands. Verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us the denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously and godly, in this present world, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Nothing spectacular about that coming, but there it is with its wonderful influence looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now we come in to the Epistle to the Colossians, chapter 3. And here we will get the climax of the teaching of Paul's prison epistles concerning our blessed hope. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, this is the inclination of heart because that is where our inheritance is, that is where our saviour is, that is where our hope is. And where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. So if, this is not a, a question in the sense that it's doubting, it's an if of argument. Like our saviour said, if I go away, I will come again. 
taking for granted that you are risen with Christ, then the natural consequence will be you will seek and set. You will seek those things which are above. You will set your affection on things above. Well, again, you see, we're not really told to set our uh, affection on things above. It's not really things, but Christ is there. Where Christ sitting. On the right hand of God, all these things have got weight. Don't forget that many a time you read about the throne and he that sat upon it. That's not merely a seat to rest. It's to sit in authority, to sit in the throne. The Pharisees were rebuked by Christ, he said to the people. He said, they sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatsoever they say unto you, you go and do it. But don't, he said, because they don't do it themselves. But to sit in a seat, which to sit in authority. In the book of the Revelation, chapter 20, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. See, an empty throne is a tragedy. But the one who sits has authority. So here we have one at the right hand. The right hand of God. And that is stressed, of course, you remember very much in the epistle to the Hebrews. Now it says, set your affection. Now this is not the word affection that we had in uh, 2 Timothy. I didn't draw attention there, perhaps I will now. If you read the two passages, two verses together, it says, unholy without natural affection. Now, there are some people who've got the idea that if you do have natural affection, you are unholy. But the God says no. He says, those who are unholy have no natural affection. Natural affection has been given us, friends, by God to be exhibited, to be shown. It's one of the poor, one of the little anticipations of what it will be in that day for our poor little affection here to have an opportunity. Now, this word affection here means rather a person's bent. I don't know whether you've ever been submitted to it or whether you've tried somebody else, but there used to be quite a craze when I was a young fellow that was called phrenology. And there was a shop right on the very corner of Ludgate Circus where you could see the map of a person's brain and you could have exhibited for people to read. Perhaps the Prime Minister of the day would have his bumps read by this Mr. Odell who ran the phrenology shop at the corner of Nugget Circus. Well, that word gives us this word. Free knowledge gives us this word for affection. It's the whole makeup of your brain and mind and intellect. Everything that is you particularly should be, as it were, all focused, gathered up in one point. Of course, you know what's going to be said of you if this is true. They say you're a man of one-track mind. Say, hallelujah. The apostle says, one thing I do. Here it is. So he says, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Now our version says, for ye are dead. Well, that may have passed once, but modern usage demands, for ye died. Ye died, but you're already quickened by grace. For ye died with Christ. And your life is hid with Christ in God. We want to beware lest we oppose the teaching of the natural immortality of the soul 
by making another swing in the other direction and telling you that every person who's a believer when he's dead is as dead as mutton and that's the end of it. That is not the teaching of scripture. This book says that your life is hid now before you die. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And there it's in the safest keeping that this universe can know, where neither moth nor rust can ever enter in. Spoil. Now then, when Christ, who is our life, shall be made manifest, here's the coming of Christ for us, then shall ye also be made manifest with him in glory. So you see the way in which this is, this is patterned out. Christ, your life is hid. Your life will be manifested. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, it will be manifested in glory then. And then, of course, if somebody says, and where will that glory be? Well, of course, the very context assumes that you've got enough common sense to know it's where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Nevertheless, there is a teaching going about that we have no right to say that in glory means anything else except that it's a glorious place and it might be down here on earth. Well, that's robbing the context of all connection, isn't it? The very emphasis is that this is where your hope is focused, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above. How could you say set your affection on things above for when your hope is realised to be realised down here? There's no argument there. And the Apostle, if he was anything, he was a logical writer. Well, that's more or less a survey of the outstanding passages that occur in Paul's prison epistles. As we said at the beginning, there's nothing so definite as the Mount of Olives and the thunders and the lightnings and the wars that that accompany earlier manifestations. But I think we realise that we've lost nothing. Now at the bottom of this chart, which we've had before in earlier days, I've tried to bring it together. Do you notice? It's very poor, it's not very obvious, uh, but I'll try to translate these peculiar little symbols at the bottom. It's supposed to be Westminster Abbey in this corner, uh, where it says Colossians and Epiphany. This is the coronation of the king. Or the Queen. Uh, just there, 1 Thessalonians 4 is a grandstand. You have to have tickets and permission to go into that. Over that side, Matthew 24, is the crowd that wait on the curb. Now it's only one king. It's only one coronation. But it's not all one and the same to stand for hours on the curb as it is to have a right to sit in a grandstand. And it's not all one and the same to have a right to sit in a grandstand outside the Abbey. It's not all one and the same but that you being a peer of the realm you have a right to go right into the Abbey itself and see the coronation and be a part of it. Now you see where we're coming? If there are three spheres of glory, three aspects of hope, we can liken it to the one coronation taking place practically at the same time, or on the same date, but those who belong to Christ as members of his body, who are blessed where he sits at the right hand, 
they are already potentially said to be seated together with him, so their hope is to be far above principality and power, far above dukes and earls and barons in that great day of coronation inside the abbey itself. So we're not waiting for his coming. His coming takes place afterwards when he comes and meets his people in the air. They're a special company who have the grandstand position. They meet him. And then when his feet come and stand upon the Mount of Olives, there's the crowd already waiting to receive him. Oh, it's an uncouth figure possibly. But even the parables of our Lord speak about a wedding feast or what not. And so we've just adopted that. If you don't like it, we'll rub it out and think of something better. But it does seem to be, it gives us a little idea that it's one movement in a series. One, two, three. The manifestation is there in glory. The meeting is in the air. The final phase is speech will stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. I want to bring before you now one more of these studies. I think it would be wise if we sort of rounded it all off and went right through various aspects, brought them all together, and then, inasmuch as we have on this um, tape recording ministry a series of studies given some years back on the book of Daniel and the book of the Revelation, and those were not quite so well recorded as they are being recorded now because we've got better uh, machines and we've certainly got better superintendents. I, I hope the friend in the fiddle vestry is not blushing too much when I say all this. And uh, so we are going to take this opportunity of saying, well, don't let us just go quickly through the book of the Revelation in one evening, as I was expecting to do. Let's say, well, we'll make a separate series, but they will follow on these question, this question of the second coming by going over again the book of Daniel and the book of the Revelation, and we hope that the recordings will come out so much better that it will justify the repetition. Now, is anybody in this meeting saying, well, I won't come to them because I heard them two years ago? No. All right, then. We'll take that as accepted, and we hope that it will be a blessing to those who listen who never will come within the four walls of this chapel. We send them our salutations and greetings of the Lord as we bring this another study to a close.